นมูตสากวัตุอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุตัสสานมูตสากวัตุอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุตัสสานมูตสากวัตุอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุตัสสาพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสา For those of us living in the monastery, this is uh, we've passed the midway point of our, our winter retreat, and we've already had two periods of uh, formal group practice, and for most of the community, one week a month, and pretty strict, silent formal practice, and also uh, next week I'm. Planning to talk about the quote from Ajahn Chah that's on the calendar page, which talks about how we sometimes get overly concerned about uh, progress and quick results in practice. And so I thought this evening it, perhaps it could be useful to consider some of the obstacles that we encounter. Mm. I'm sure everybody here who's been on retreat. Uh, By now, we'll have, uh, well, hopefully, had some uh, some pretty good times, but also probably come of course some, some um, obstructions to well-being. Uh, it's not all an easy ride being on retreat. And it's not supposed to be, of course. We, the teachings tell us that the inherent condition of Consciousness is pure and radiant, and already absolutely okay. It's what we add to it that's the problem. It's the ignorance that obscures the actuality. It wasn't that the Buddha created a new sort of consciousness when he was liberated. He rather discovered what consciousness was like when it was free from distortions, free from from confusion, free from uh, the The toxins that, uh, regrettably, we accumulate. So, as we're aiming for liberation, it's inevitable we're going to, from time to time, encounter uh, obstructions. Um, how do we meet them? How do we skillfully meet them and and not make them worse? Because that's important, obviously. Because uh, it's quite possible uh, this work, this inner work. Uh, The spiritual disciplines that we take on, that we can be overly zealous, or we can be overly heedless, or we can be overly lazy or tardy, and many ways that we can lose perspective. And then, when we do encounter difficulties, when we do come across obstructions, we're not prepared for them. So, so perhaps this evening uh, we could consider uh, how to. Check to see that we're well prepared for what we might encounter on this path of liberation. Early this week, I was speaking with my good friend Lumpur Tiradamo, and we have a good, long conversation from time to time. It's always very pleasing, and on this occasion, I was 
talking with him about his book that I'm told has been very well received, a publication called Working with the Hindrances. And in there he looks into the five hindrances, what we call the five nivaranas and that the Buddha articulated. And, and he makes the point, uh, very usefully, that these apparent obstructions, these apparent hindrances, are something that we work with. And when we come across obstructions to the path, we come across those things that we really wish were just not like this, we can be in a hurry to get rid of them. We can get judgmental and say it shouldn't be this way. We can try to overcome them. And sometimes we can overcome them. Sometimes we can bypass them. Sometimes we can avoid them. But those ones of very low-grade obstructions, well, they're not that important, really. It's the ones that... that, uh, are really rather more intense, that we need to be more careful and more require a lot of skill. And so Ajahn Tirulama was making the point that, that we need to approach these aspects of the mind with the intention to work with them. And to one thing is to be very careful we don't idealise the goal, like the concept of the goal. Ajahn Chah was always talking about letting go. Ajahn Sumedha is always talking about letting go and read these teachings and listen to these teachings and then if we're not skillful enough we can idealize this concept of the goal and like turning it into a holy cow and then bowing down to it you know, I've got to let go, I've got to let go and so we're coming across something that's obstructing the path and we're fixated on the idea of what it would be like when we think we've let go Mpoatira was pointing out that this is one way of making things worse. You need to be willing to work with these obstructions, these hindrances, these things that seem to be getting in the way. And that means being very tuned into the way we react when we feel obstructed. You get a little good feeling going in meditation, you know, getting the right efforts lined up and feel like you're making some progress and having what we call good results. And then, maybe out of unawareness, we uh, latch onto that, we cling to that, and become fixated on that. And, and then we start talking about my practice is going really well. What we really mean is I'm getting what I want. I'm having a good time. It doesn't necessarily mean our practice is going really well. And it shows up when we, the conditions change and, and then we find we've got to deal with a whole load of sleepiness. You just go to set meditation, just no energy. Uh, and Pali is called Tina Metta. Just want to go to sleep. Just nothing there. No motivation. As soon as you close your eyes, it's gone. Dullness. Lethargy, I think, Lumpotera calls it. Or worry, anxiety. Udacha kukucha in Pali. Restlessness and worry. thought everything was going well but then now we're just caught up in anxiety and worry about 
something that we think might have happened in the past or something we think might happen in the future, we become obsessed by it. Well, if we have become fixated and caught up in conditions when practice is going how we like it to be, then the chances are we're going to get lost and caught up in when things are going otherwise. And so, so we need to be careful constantly, constantly careful. That's the message. So it's not a matter of becoming peaceful. Peace, if it happens, is nice, but it's a matter of always trying to make the effort to be more mindful, to be more present, to be more alert, to be more careful. So we're not going to make things worse. And also in preparing ourselves for what we call these obstructions or hindrances, it, uh, it's useful to notice that there are these different levels of intensity. Now, when the Buddha talks about the five nivaranas, these spiritual hindrances, you know, generally speaking, it's uh, probably referring to quite subtle mind states. Uh, and it's for instance, the sense of disappointment or resistance that you might experience when you realize, oh, you've got to stop sitting meditation in your room now because it's time to go to chanting and you don't want to go to chanting and that subtle level of, of resistance or disappointment, you know, even a subtle level of ill will, you know, that is a nivarana, that is an obstruction. But that's very different from coming across a pent-up rage that you've had locked away in the basement for the last 10 or 15 years because of something that happened in your childhood. It's a very different level of intensity. And if we can identify these uh, obstructions in terms of their intensity, then we can make sure we'll be in a better position to use the right tools in the right way at the right time. Now, if we try to apply uh, subtle spiritual tools to deal with something that is actually a more intense uh, level of emotional upheaval, uh, we can, in fact, make things worse. We can be busy trying to uh, transcend some level of selfhood that we've encountered uh, when, in fact, we're nowhere near ready to transcend it. What's called for, in fact, is the ability to simply receive ourselves. Talking about abandoning and relinquishment and transcending is okay at a certain level of practice, but maybe we've already had too much abandonment and uh, at an early stage of life, and what's called for is the cultivation of loving-kindness, the cultivation of compassion, the cultivation of empathy with the suffering that was experienced and wasn't lived through. If we don't live through our suffering at any stage of life, once we start on the spiritual journey, we're going to have to meet it. And so it's helpful to prepare ourselves with this understanding that, yes, there are subtle spiritual hindrances, but there are also less subtle what we could call emotional obstructions. And we need a whole different set of tools to deal with these. Hmm. If we haven't got this level of understanding, then, as I said, we can be using the wrong tools for for the job. And 
and we can unfortunately make things worse. We can be judging ourselves because we feel we're failing because we can't overcome our anger or we can't get rid of our anxiety. We can't be free from fear. Well, it's similar to what Lumpur Teradama was talking about as idealizing the goal of letting go and, and grasping for something that we imagine in the future when in fact right practice really means receiving ourselves where we meet ourselves. Wherever we meet ourselves, that's where we can receive ourselves. And when we fully receive ourselves, that's when letting go happens. So as I've said many times before, letting go is not something we do. Letting go is something that we can maybe, if we're quick enough, see it happening or we remember, oh, letting go happened. With hindsight, oh, look, letting go happened. Well, then our clever, deluded egos jump in and are quite likely to lay claim for what happened as a result of our good practice of bearing with the unbearable, enduring the unendurable, tolerating the intolerable, living through the life that was unlived. And that's also something to be alert for, to be attentive to. We don't aim to do the letting go. What we aim for is to receive ourselves wherever we meet ourselves, whatever sort of self that we might be, to have the agility to adjust as is needed and then to use the right tools for that. Now, talking like this, uh, uh, maybe some people think, oh, I, I'm not ready for spiritual work. I need to go and do more psychotherapy. I need to develop a better sense of self-respect before I can transcend the self. And that's an understandable thought. It's an understandable idea. Maybe even before people embark on a spiritual journey, they might read enough or heard enough to know that, yeah, there are pitfalls in this path of practice. Or for people who have already committed themselves to the spiritual work and, and then been at it for a while only to fall flat on their face and come across the whole lot of uh, old debts, uh, emotional debts uh, that they didn't realise they had and find that they got to backtrack a little bit and and take care of some uh, something that they didn't realise was lurking in the basement. They're busy upstairs playing with a computer, uh, forgetting of all the stuff that they have stuffed into the basement and, until the smell starts leaking up through the floorboards and it becomes intolerable and you have to go down and deal with it. And, and you become really disappointed and think, oh, all this spiritual work I've been doing is a waste of time. I've been failing I've got to go back and, and attend to all this personality stuff and, and then give up on the spiritual practices. Well, both of those assumptions uh, is, uh, can be completely wrong. It is quite possible to embrace both aspects of practice, to honour the spiritual calling, uh, to heed that calling, to make effort to uh, transcend 
ignorance, to see beyond, to see through the way things appear to be, to understand the actuality of consciousness and dynamics of consciousness, to understand awareness and the activity of awareness, the spiritual work. And at the same time, to be agile enough, to be in tune enough, when the time calls for it, to be able to change gear, adjust and pay attention to emotional needs that maybe have never been met. Mm. Stages of development that we didn't really properly pass through. It's quite possible to do both. But it does help a lot to be prepared, not to assume that we can only do one or the other. Actually, we can do both practices in in parallel. It's like going for a walk with somebody. You can go for a walk with somebody and you have a conversation at the same time. We can do two things at the same time. In fact, it's very nice. It's a very nice thing to go for a walk with a friend and have a really rewarding, deep, meaningful conversation. So preparing ourselves for whatever obstructions may appear on the path at whatever stage. They don't necessarily all appear in the beginning. Sometimes in the beginning of practice we have such enthusiasm. We have what uh, Shunri and Suzuki Roshi in their Zen mind, beginner's mind, highlight most usefully beginner's mind. Wonderful way to approach practice and uh, understanding to cultivate and develop. Very easy when we're actually beginning. Not so easy to maintain beginner's mind as we accumulate uh, impressions and memories of experiences on the journey. Mm. So in the beginning it's more likely we have beginner's mind, we have enthusiasm, we have interest, we have energy, Maybe we're young. Mm-hmm. We can get dazzled by initial experiences. The initial relative samadhi, in contrast to the confusion that maybe we were suffering from, can appear amazing, can be really incredible, and just discover the beautiful feelings that can come from having a mildly tranquil mind. Yeah. Or some of the uh, stunning insights, as they can appear to be in the beginning, they can be just just thoroughly mind-blowing, a a new level of understanding that can emerge in early stage of practice. So we don't even know what we've got ahead of us. We don't even have an inkling of what might be around the corner, what potential obstructions. So just because obstructions don't appear at the beginning of the journey doesn't mean to say they're not going to appear later on. So again, being cautious, being modest, being consistent in our effort. And that doesn't mean we devalue the initial experiences and practice. Going on retreat in the beginning, and I remember my early retreat, my first retreat, my first meditation retreat I went on, was tremendously important. Without that, I don't know how long I would have lasted on the spiritual journey. Um, 1974 in Nimbin, I can still remember 
walking meditation and, and a, a shift taking place and recognition of the potential, uh, the peaceful mind and the clarity that comes with that uh, are tremendously important. Yeah. Also, my first year as a monk, so in 1975 at Hinmak Pang, uh, Another shift taking place. There was a lot of intensity at the time. The, the environment I was in, the pressure I was under, the determination, the effort I was making, and uh, living close and in proximity to Ajahn Tate and the other committed monks there, and very inspiring an environment. And whatever the conditioning factors were, again I remember as during evening chanting one night. Uh, experiencing a shift taking place in a, a new perspective a radically new perspective that had tremendous consequences yeah. but at the time it wasn't clear how much work there was going to be later on yeah. we don't know what's around the corner but those initial experiences are tremendously important yeah. they, they, they they're like a foundation and give us a foundation in practice. Mm. So being cautious and preparing ourselves for the obstructions and the path is uh, not suggesting that we should get timid or scared of the journey. Yeah. Being cautious is just being intelligent. Yeah. It helps us prepare ourselves. Yeah. Like if you, you know, the image of Climbing a mountain, you know, if it's a serious mountain, you, you don't do it without checking your gear. You know, the, are the ropes and, and in good shape? Are you, you know, fit and healthy? Have you got the right kind of food and medicine if needed? You know, we do some serious preparation. That's very different from being timid. Mm. So being timid is unhelpful. And being timid is an obstruction to the journey, but also being rash is an obstruction. So really valuing those initial experiences and appreciating that they can equip us with this firm foundation that can sustain us on the journey when we encounter these obstructions. I was thinking earlier about this uh, very beautiful Buddha image that we were offered uh, a couple of weeks ago a um, five-foot-tall Borobudur stone Buddha image that uh, we want to put down by the lake. And as some of you might have observed, you've been down by the lake and it can get rather boggy there and think, how can we put this massive stone Buddha image, tremendously heavy, how can we put it there in a way whereby it doesn't sink into the bog? Well, we've got to build a platform and yeah, just like those early insights that we have in practice, we need to build a platform or a basis. The foundation that I, I hope we can build down there, it'll have a, like a foundation of gravel and then cement. And then on top of that, we place the Buddha image, in which the Buddha image uh, symbolizing for us our aspiration for liberation. The aspiration for liberation, for freedom, is wonderful inspiring, uplifting and energizing but inspiration and enthusiasm and energy 
without a firm foundation uh, is actually quite dangerous and you know, our aspirations might end up sinking into the swamp. So when we encounter obstructions, being hopefully ready to work with them, having already prepared our minds so that we're not overly conditioned by compulsive judging. We have the agility when something appears to obstruct us. Ill will, passionate rage, indignation. We don't just fight it. We don't just try to get over it. I remember listening to a, this is many years ago now, you know, I don't know, maybe over 30, maybe 35 years ago, on the winter retreat in Chithurst, and Hudson Sumato had given an inspiring Dhamma talk and about dealing with difficulties. And one way or another, I, I realized that this, this anger that I was holding on to, I think, <laughs> in, in regards to a particular individual in the monastery, actually, and uh, anyway, I had to experience it fully. I, you know, I think maybe this is what Ajahn Sumedha was talking about. We don't want to just deny these feelings that we have. We've got to feel what we feel. Feel it fully until we feel the consequences of clinging and then letting go happens. You know, of course, this is what the Buddha taught as well. We can't let go of something until we've seen the, the painful consequences of clinging to it. And we idealize, idealize about letting go without having done the work of fully feeling the consequences of clinging, you just build up more stress. And so I prepared myself and went out there doing, I remember doing walking meditation in the car park, and okay, instead of trying to control this feeling of rage, I'll just feel it. And I I remember being rather overwhelmed by this rage, this heat, this fire that welled up within me, and and we do run the risk of falling into overwhelm if we're overly keen to deal with our obstructions. You know, what's called for is a much more cautious, respectful, like, like taming a wild horse. You know, we're not talking about breaking the horse. You, know, you can hurt the horse if you approach it in the wrong way, but, but if you're not really cautious, you, you get your head kicked in. Uh, you get broken ribs. Uh, so we respect this wild beast, uh, uh, the wildness within us. We respect it, uh, but you also keep your hand on the leash. You know, give it a free rein. How do we do that? Well, if we don't know, then we modestly acknowledge that we don't know how to do it but we're interested in doing it so we approach it with agility training a horse you've got to be really agile you've got to move in the right direction at the right speed at the right time sometimes you need to be gentle encouraging appreciating sometimes you need to be really firm and quick when I was a young monk living at Wapapong Ajahn Chah's mother monastery and a main monastery in Thailand, and there was this notice on the tree there. There used to be these little quotes of Dhamma teachings attached to the trees there. 
One of them was eat little, sleep little, speak little. This was the another injunction for right practice. Now, there is a time of practice when that's absolutely right. Eat little, speak little, sleep little. It can be right at a certain stage of practice. But also, it was a time when uh, Anjan Chah was speaking to this young, idealistic Western monk, looking at a little bit of food that he had in his bowl and looking how skinny and scrawny and miserable this guy was. And Ajahn Chah was telling him, you've got to eat more, lots more. Yeah. There's also a time to eat more. There's a time to sleep more. Yeah. If you've got good samadhi, like some of the great teachers have got good samadhi and you know, maybe two hours sleep a night is plenty for them. But if you don't have good samadhi and you're not sleeping, you can push yourself over the edge. Yeah. Scientists these days are beginning to understand a little bit better the dynamic of what happens to the brain when we sleep. And it's a, apparently it's akin to something like defragging your computer. Yeah. It's an important function, sleep, an essential function, unless you have exceedingly good samadhi. And then it seems to be that that's a, a sufficient replacement for what goes on. Although also if you've got very good samadhi, maybe you're not building up the stress in the first place, right? For some people, some stages in training, what's needed is not sleep less, is sleep more. Or speak more. Sometimes, yes, it's good to spend periods in quiet or even silence, inhibiting the impulse to open our mouth and say something, some self-promoting story about how great we are or some whinging, whining, complaining that bets off steam and makes us feel somewhat better afterwards, uh, sort of, kind of, better. Uh, Heedless speech can be a great waste of energy and sometimes the right thing to do is to to really determine to be quiet or even silent and let the energy build up and the intensity serves our interest in cultivation of insight. Like turning up the heat... Buddha's image of purifying gold. If you don't turn up the heat, then the dross doesn't come to the surface. You can't scoop it off. The dross of ignorance, the dross of conceit. You might feel like you've got pure gold, but maybe you haven't. haven't turned the heat up enough. Sometimes what's called for is, yes, eat little, sleep little, speak little. But sometimes, with speaking, actually what's called for is having a good friend who you know is not going to judge you because you can't stop judging yourself. And what's really needed before you can meet yourself and let go of yourself and move beyond where you're stuck or where you feel stuck, absolutely the thing that's needed is somebody to talk to. Somebody who has the skill of being able to listen, somebody whose heart is sufficiently warm and soft and alert to be able to receive us where we are and to hear us. And in so hearing us, we get maybe a reflection of what we can possibly do for ourselves. Now, without that, you know, it's like it's like lacking nourishment. And of course, here we're talking about emotional nourishment and if we've suffered emotional malnutrition in our early life, then that really needs to be corrected. As I was saying earlier, before we try to transcend ourselves, 
we've got to be able to, to meet ourselves and receive ourselves before letting go can happen. It's a good illustration of this in the scriptures where the Buddha using his uh, spiritual powers was able to see that there was this this uh, fellow in a, a village that wasn't that far away that he could travel to and this fellow was was really ready for Dhamma. He was really ready for insight in the Four Noble Truths. And so the Buddha travelled there to that village, prepared to give the teachings. You know, he was a very poor fellow, actually. He wasn't one of the, the village headmen or one of the wealthy people in the village, but he was a very poor chap. And, and But the Buddha knew what he was there for and recognised the readiness, the readiness. Of the, but actually, this fellow wasn't properly fed. So the Buddha didn't expound the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, what he did was made sure this, this chap got enough food to eat first. Yeah. Yes, on one level, he was primed, he was really ready for the teachings on one level. But actually, on another level, he was obstructed, he was malnourished. I mean, he was ready to receive the teachings of the Four Noble Truths from the Buddha himself, and that's, that's quite a big deal. You've got to have some barami going for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, but he had this obstruction, he had this limitation which the Buddha recognised and so he saw to it that this fellow got enough food so he was physically nourished and then of course when he did hear the Dhamma teachings they did what they could do and he was liberated. And well, likewise in our case when we come across emotional malnourishment or a sense of lacking, limitation, obstruction within ourselves pushing past it, trying to overcome it, judging it as wrong or a sign of failure, being in a hurry to overcome it, or habitually caught up in ideals about the goal that we're supposed to be striving for, actually just makes our predicament much worse. and That's really unfortunate. So even though we might feel that sometimes we're continually bombarded with obstructions, we can take heart that everybody encounters obstructions on the path. Whether we've got more or less than anybody else, actually there's no point in thinking about it. This is what we've got. If I remember what Ajahn Chah said about this correctly, he was talking about or talking to Western monks, he says, yes, you know, some of you have got many problems. You suffer a lot. And you know, not just the normal spiritual hindrances that everybody's going to encounter, but also the, the difficulties of living in a different country and different food, different climate, different language. And you've got a lot of difficulties. But he said it's like you've got a, a big house with lots of rooms, lots of rooms to clean. Lots of work to do. But when you've done your work, then you're in a position to generate lots of benefit. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu. <laughs>